This episode of Hitch to Homicide deals with the subject of rape. Listener discretion is advised. August 1990, Gainesville, Florida. The University of Florida is ready to start their new fall semester on campus. But just days before, five students are murdered in their apartments, all brutally stabbed, some raped and mutilated. But police have no leads. After hundreds of interviews, 6,000 pieces of evidence, and the arrest of the wrong man, it would be a friend, a high school friend, who would help authorities pin the murders on the right man. This is Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. The devil made me do it. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And a place that I've always wanted to go. Our friends in Fiji. <gasps> yes, please. Bula, bula, bula. Wonderful. You, you know it's gorgeous there. Yeah. That's where everybody has their own little bungalow and it's very Instagram worthy. Yep. Maybe someday we'll get to go, honey. <laughs> That's a bucket list. It's on the bucket list there you for go. sure. Cool. Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to hit that like button. You can subscribe to the podcast. We appreciate all your comments and emails and reviews. Go drop us one. Yep. I'm going to read you a couple today. All right. (laughs) This is from at Darnell Anders 8768. Okay. You guys are the perfect couple. We know that. (laughs) Who brings humor to such a sad and devastating story. You guys compliment each other in telling the story. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. That's very nice. But this one I couldn't resist. This is from Red Rum True Crime. Oh, no. Oh, this is frightening already. Wow. This wasn't like anything I expected. I was looking for a podcast about Gillis. He is listening to the Sean Gillis. Right. So I listened whilst nodding off to sleep. However, if I'm unfamiliar with the channel presenting the content, I want then to have to do the, quote, voice accent, in quote, test, <laughs> exclamation point, exclamation point. Okay. Some podcasters' voices really great on my ears. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I can't deal with that when trying to unwind <laughs> and doze off. Yeah. So congratulations, you two. You passed the test. Woo-hoo! Exclamation point, heart, <laughs> smiley face, and then we have the Union Jack. Very I believe nice. that's the Union Jack. I'm trying to look at emojis from a really far distance. <laughs> that's funny. So at least we got that going for us. We do have that. Go- I'm making somebody go to sleep, honey. Yeah. Rob falls asleep while I'm talking to him, too. I don't. (laughs) Remember, you can also join our closed Facebook group, the H2H In-Laws and Outlaws. Just answer a couple questions, and you are in. Yes. Let's talk about this case. Okay. I've had it on the docket for a while. Next week is Halloween, and I wanted to cover it partially because I don't want the names of these victims to ever be lost in this story, and also because it is so horrific. It inspired the movie Scream. Oh, really? Yes, it did. Wow. 
And y'all, I tried to get Rob to watch Scream last night with me (laughs) before we did this podcast. I saw it a million years ago. It came out in 1996, so clearly a long time ago. But football was on. so Football was on, guys. I lost out. (laughs) It took precedence. He didn't watch. He watched football. Everybody, all the men are out there going, yeah, Rob. (laughs) Yay, Rob. Yeah, well, what can I say? Before we get started, let me thank some sources, Wikipedia, Biography.com, Escapist Magazine, Nine.com, The Shreveport Times, The Ocala Star Banner, The Miami Herald, The Sun, ABC News 2020, NBC News, Dateline, E! Online, Oxygen Channel, Serial Killer Documentaries, and Scream, The True Story, which you can find on Discovery+. Plus. Nice. All right. Well, you ready? I am. Let's do it. Danny Rowling is born on May 26, 1954, in Shreveport, Louisiana, to James and Claudia. Okay. James was back from the Korean War. He's a decorated soldier, but he also has mental illness and PTSD. Mm. And a little background on James's family. When he was a young boy, he actually watched his grandfather slit his grandmother's throat from ear to ear while sitting at the dinner table. What? He just got up and slit her throat and watched her bleed out on the table. And he was, it was his grandparents. That's his grandparents. What, he didn't like the pot roast? I mean, (laughs) is that not crazy? Wow. Okay. So Danny's father is the one that witnessed this, James. Right. And I could say that's called foreshadowing, but y'all, it's way too easy. Y'all are all over that like a rash. (laughs) It's a can of corn in the outfield for all my baseball fans out there. It is baseball season. Yes, it is. But when Danny's parents, when Frank and Claudia get married, she's only 19. She's petite. She has brunette hair. She has brown eyes. Claudia gets pregnant, but James isn't happy about it. Mm. And while she's pregnant, James was physically, mentally, and verbally abusive Mm. to her. So Danny isn't even born, and his mom is already being berated by his father. Wow. There are sources that say that his father raped his mother while she was pregnant, and he even pushed her down some stairs. She was. And when Danny is born, his father makes it abundantly clear he wasn't happy, saying, that is not my child, and we don't need a child. The wrong kid died. Yeah, well, he was just <laughs> born. I mean, he yeah. hadn't even died. But it's it's a little late for that, James, yeah. you know? Yeah. We don't need a child. It's a little late for that. Wow. But in short, Danny's father did not like him and did not want him. Mm. Now, Danny's mother, Claudia, leaves James a couple times. This is like an ongoing thing. She goes to her parents' house, but she always comes back. And not even a year after Danny is born, his little brother, Kevin, comes into the world. But James is such an angry man. There's a story where he actually punts Danny across the floor when he's just a little boy, when he's a toddler. He just kicks him. So Danny has this horrible childhood, but I am telling you right now, Danny wants the approval of his father so badly. This man who is so horrible to him, he desperately wants the approval of his dad. Now, when Kevin is one, when Danny's younger brother, Kevin, is one, the whole family moves to Columbus, Georgia, where Danny's father is from, and they're thinking it's going to help. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. So a new start didn't help. No. No. And Danny's mother actually attempts suicide when he is five years old. Wow. And James moves the whole family back to Shreveport, where he takes a job as 
a police officer. So if you're angry and you dominate your authority over people, uh, what do you do? You become a policeman. There you go. Well, Nothing against police officers. We have friends who are police officers. There are lots of good ones out there. Yep. But Claudia will have another breakdown. And after an ambulance comes to pick her up, she spends five weeks in the psych ward. And little Danny is traumatized by his mom's nervous breakdown. Danny's father is going to take his frustrations out on Danny, telling him constantly, you're no good, you're stupid, you're worthless. And as a little boy, he would look inside houses where people were happy, and he tried to see himself in that house. And by the time he hits puberty, looking in those houses turns into peeping in those houses, turns into a sexual thing, and he's a peeping Tom. And he gets caught watching a cheerleader getting dressed. Is that every teen boy's dream? (laughs) (laughs) She's putting on her cheerleading uniform. He's watching through the window. Sort of like an animal house. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. (laughs) Yes. Danny turns to art and music for his escape. And he's escaping from his dad, who has now done things to him like handcuff him outside in 100-degree heat and just leave him there. What? He also handcuffs him and has his police friends haul him off because he can't stand the sight of him. She was. And when Danny's aunt calls the police on James for mistreating Danny, they refuse to do anything to James because he's a good police officer. Wow. Now, Danny's later going to say he developed several personalities in order to cope with the abuse. I'm sure. I don't know if that's true or not, but he is going to say that. But Danny gets the gift of a guitar at age 15 for Christmas. All right. And he said it was one of the happiest memories from his teens. Of course. (laughs) Second only to peeping in on the cheerleader, probably. True, true. Now, he learns to play. He also likes to sing. He also likes to break into homes. (laughs) He did it hundreds of times. He would go in, he would sit in people's houses, and they didn't even know he was there. Oh, man, that's creepy. That's called frogging. Haven't we, We've talked about frogging before, where people like live in your house and you don't know they're there. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty scary. I think he just went in and sat in their living room or broke in when they were asleep, and he would just be in the house. The closest thing that we have frogging is squirrels running across the roof. And we have a lot of those. And they like to run across the roof over my office, especially. And it makes me crazy. But when Frank disciplined Danny, it was with a belt. He would also whip him so hard, he's beating him in the front yard, that a neighbor is worried for Danny's life. Wow. He grows up horribly. He never finishes high school. And at the age of 17, he gets permission to join the service. He goes into the Air Force. Okay. It's 1971. Okay. So I've set you up here. Not a happy childhood by any stretch of the imagination. Right. So he can't finish high school. He actually had to repeat the third grade twice, I saw. And his teachers talked about how nervous he was all the time. Of course. Yeah, I'd be nervous too. If I was going home to a dad, he was going to beat me. Well, the service didn't do much for him either. The Air Force didn't do much because he's not going to last long in the military and he's honorably discharged in 1972 after having weed on his person. Mm. He's very immature. It's like he's emotionally stunted and he kind of, he kind of acts like a child yeah. and he sort of acts out like a child. I'm sure. So after he's honorably discharged, he's back home again, but he's living with his grandfather this time. Now, 
Danny's mother is a member of the Pentecostal Church, which is Christianity that emphasizes the gifts of the Holy Spirit, specifically speaking in tongues or what is called glossolalia. Hmm. There's your word for the day. I didn't know that. As well as supernatural healing and other manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And this is important because Danny grows up believing that through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, his sins are going to be forgiven. Even his murderous sins. Doesn't matter what you do. You just have to say, God, forgive me. Wow. And th- that's not that's not the Pentecostal church's viewpoint. That's Danny's viewpoint. Yeah. Let me make that abundantly clear. Gospel according to Danny. It's the gospel according <laughs> to Danny. So Danny's home. He's back in church and he asks God to send me a woman. Lord, send me a woman. <laughs> Thank you, God. <laughs> Sorry. And right then, Omather Halco walks by. Omather. Yes. Okay. I hope I got her name right. I like looked it up to get a bunch of different people saying her name, and everybody says it a little bit different. I did my best. I don't feel so bad about my welcome, welcome, welcome. So. <laughs> don't feel bad about those ever. <laughs> but she is 19. She's brunette. She's petite. Danny thinks it's a sign from God, and he courts her, and he marries her on September 6, 1974, and these two will go on to have a daughter together, but Danny is abusive to his wife, Mm. and the marriage doesn't last, which makes sense. Isn't it true that like when you see a loving marriage, then that's your example for a loving marriage? Yeah, right. Although, I mean, I know kids who come from divorced families and they're in loving marriages. Right. But I think if you see abuse, I think that that's generational. Right. That's a generational thing. It's more of the norm. But when the divorce papers show up, he loses his damn mind and he starts running around the outside of the house when they're trying to serve him with divorce papers. Yeah, well, once again, like a child. Like a child. Yeah. Yes. And then he goes into a very deep depression. He starts taking off in the car with absolutely no plan. He actually rapes a woman who physically resembles his ex-wife. He starts robbing grocery stores. He's caught and goes to prison in Alabama where they think he's knucking futz and they send him to the Rice Mental Hospital. When he's released, he goes back home to Shreveport and to his parents' house. And right after that, He robs again. He robs a grocery store, a Kroger, and he goes back to jail in Mississippi. It's almost like he can't help himself. He's he's just a little bit more than unstable. Yeah. Just a little bit, a little bit more. If unstable is here, I'm going to say Danny's like somewhere above the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. When he is released, he's now in his 30s and he goes, where do you think? To his parents' house? Back to Shreveport. And his neighbors, his parents' neighbors, describe him as being a loner who played acoustic guitar, jogged the streets alone, worked out, and interacted with the youngsters. Mm. It kind of sounded like you until we got to the interacting with the youngsters. And the working out. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. But some of the neighborhood children called him Rambo. Really? Because he often wore a bandana and fatigues. Okay. He's 6'2", and he works out. Okay. Now, while he's at home, he continues to fight with his dad. And there's this woman, her name is Bunny Mills, 
who is friends with Danny, but also friends with his father. Okay. And she sort of tries to become a mediator between these two, but it doesn't really work. She tries to get Danny to seek counseling, and she even takes him to a community mental health complex. But when they get there, it's a five-hour wait to see somebody. And during this time, his anxiety level is through the roof, and he wants to leave. Like, she actually chased him around the outside of this mental complex. (laughs) He's got this this, uh, NASCAR running around circles kind of thing going on. We got a runner. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. But on top of all of that, he's afraid what his dad is going to do or what he's going to do to him if he finds out that he's going to go see a shrink. Right. Danny is highly unstable, living in Shreveport. He's miserable and he's volatile. Other than that, everything's fine. Other than that, he's good. Wow. By the fall of 1989, Danny is working at a restaurant. But on Saturday, November 4th, he is fired. I think he was a waiter. And he goes on a hunt. Now, whether he's looking for a girl or a family to spy on, who knows? Yeah. He follows Julie Grissom, a petite brunette home. Do you see a pattern here? Yeah. And here's the Grissom family. Okay. Her dad, Tom, is 55, divorced and works for AT&T. They live on Beth Lane in Shreveport in an area called Southern Hills. Now, Tom had been battling throat cancer for years, but was in remission. He was doing better. He's on the brink of retirement. His 24-year-old daughter, Julie, she's tiny. She's petite. She's brunette. She has brown eyes. And she's studying marketing at LSU's campus in Shreveport. And she's also working part-time at Dillard's. Okay. Shout out to Dillard's. My mom retired from there. She's almost finished with school. She's ready to graduate. Now, Tom has another child and a grandson, eight-year-old Sean. And little Sean likes to visit with his grandfather. And on the weekend of November 4th, 1989, that's exactly what he's doing. It was part of Sean's birthday present to spend time with his grandfather and his aunt Julie. Now he's spending the weekend with them and then they're going to get him to school on Monday, November 6th. And then his mom will get him after school. But when Sean's mother gets a call from the school saying Sean isn't here, she gets worried. Mm. She calls police and asks the neighbors if they can check to see if the house is unlocked. And at 8.45, a neighbor, Bob Coyles, goes into the house, opening the door to the utility room, and wedged against the door is a body. Tom's body was slumped against the door. He's blocking the entrance to the utility room. Mm -hmm. He had several stab wounds in the back and chest. He'd been cooking steaks out on the grill in the backyard sometime that evening. They find little eight-year-old Sean face down in the family room with one knife wound to his back that exited through his chest. (sighs) He was attacked while watching TV. Julie's body was found naked and partially hanging off a bed. She was stabbed at least three times in the back, but was left facing up with her legs spread in a vulgar position. Mm. Vinegar was applied to her body to clean it. What? She, she had been raped and tortured. Wow. Now that evening, she was planning to go out to a high school friend's wedding and had picked out a red dress. So she had a red dress laying out. Mm. And detectives believe the three of them were killed between 6 and 8 p.m. on Saturday before their bodies are found on Monday. Oh, man. There are no signs of forced entry, no ransacking of the house, no robbery, 
And although there were some indications that there was a struggle, the house was very neat. And Shreveport police have zero leads or suspects. Danny lived 10 minutes away with his parents on West Canal Boulevard in Sunset Acres. Oh, man. Now, a few months after their murders, Danny is with some friends from high school, Cindy Juracic and her husband, Stephen Dobbin. Cindy, I apologize. (laughs) I did my best. (laughs) These three all went to the same church, and they graduated high school together. Well, they went to high school together because he didn't graduate. Right. But he would come over to their house every night for a while. Like, he would just come over and hang out at night, probably because he didn't want to hang out where his dad was. Sure. But one night, Danny tells Stephen, quote, I like to stick knives into people. What? Quote. Yeah. He said that? He says this. Oh, my God. I like to stick knives into people. Okay. If somebody said that to me. Yeah. I would go, oh, okay, that's nice. I would quickly leave the room and call 911. <laughs> well, he does kind of do something like that. All right. But he tells them both, quote, one day I'm going to leave this town and I'm going to go where the girls are beautiful and I can just lay in the sun and watch beautiful women all day. Hmm. That's called foreshadowing. Uh-oh. Exactly. <laughs> now, after Danny says this to Stephen, he, Stephen comes in the house. This is exactly what you were talking about. Stephen comes in the house and he looks at his wife, Cindy, and he goes, he's got to go. Yeah. Like, we're not messing with him anymore. Yeah. And at the time, Cindy was thinking, could Danny have been behind the murders of the Grissom family. Yeah. And then she's like, nah, I mean, we went to high school with him. We go to church with him. We're friends. And he's weird, but he's not a killer. Yeah. Want to bet? Six months later, on May 18th, 1990, Danny and his father have a fight. A fight that started when Danny's dad told him to roll up his car windows because it was raining. Now, that doesn't sound so terrible to me. But uh, this no. is apparently what starts this fight. Hmm. Danny storms out of the house and his dad gets a gun and comes after him. Now, remember, he's a cop. Jeez. He shoots at Danny. I saw in one source six times and another I saw that he shot at him three times. He misses every single time. What the? Yeah. But then Danny goes to his car and gets a gun, a thirty-eight caliber pistol. He shoots his father standing in the kitchen once in the head right between the eyes Jeez. and another in the stomach. But James will survive this. (laughs) Who are these people? He loses sight in one eye and hearing in one ear, but he is not going down without a fight. Wow. Yeah. Didn't kill him. That's crazy. Right between the eyes. Right between the eyes. And he didn't die. And he didn't die. Man. Nope. Just lost vision in one eye and hearing in one ear. Wow. But he's a cop. And if he shot, if he pulled the trigger six times... Hell, I could pull the trigger six times and hit something, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah. Sometime that same evening, after he shoots his dad, he's out of there. Yeah. But Danny went to a house in the 4200 block of Wildwood Street. He robs a couple of $21, saying he needed to get to Dallas. His car was found abandoned around 6 the next morning in the Motel 6 parking lot on Monkhouse Drive, and police learned he didn't check into the hotel. Now, at some point, he made his way to Kansas, then to Florida on a Greyhound bus. And when he gets to Florida, he pitches a tent in the woods in Gainesville. 
home to the University of Florida. Go SEC. Go Big Ten. (laughs) Okay, whatever. We'll talk. All right. Go Bucks. But he is living out of this tent on the edge of campus. And I've seen pictures of this. There's like a wooded area. And it's right on the edge of the Gainesville University of Florida campus. He's so close to this university, tucked back in this wooded area, and he's watching all the young girls come into town. Well, that can't be good. And what did he say he wanted to do? Go someplace warm and watch the beautiful girls. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, yeah. In my mind, when he said that earlier, I had, you know, visions of a beach and umbrellas and gentle waves and stuff like that. But, yeah, he's on the edge of a university campus. Rob's thinking foo-foo drink with an umbrella. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a pina colada. Something. Yeah. But he's in this tent. And while he's living in this tent, he has with him a gun, a tape recorder. He's got his guitar. He sings songs. He plays his guitar. And he he records himself. Hmm. He records himself talking. He records himself singing. Okay. But before he signs off, he says, quote, I've got something I've got to do, end quote. Once again, well, that can't be good. It's not good. Yeah. On Monday, August 27th, it's the first official day of classes at the University of Florida. On Friday, August 24th, just a few days before, Mm -hmm. two young freshmen are moving into their campus apartment. They're excited. They're beginning their college experience. Okay. Christina Powell, or Christy, is 17 years old. Sonia Larson is 18. These two are both beautiful brunette girls with long hair and brown eyes. They're full of life. They had loads of friends who were also going to the University of Florida. And these two actually met over the summer and decided to become roommates at at Florida. Okay. And I read where Sonia's mom was really upset because they couldn't get into a dorm. She didn't want her daughter in an apartment. She Mm. wanted her in a dorm. I guess she thought that that was safer. Sure. But these, these apartments... They are campus apartments. They're so close to campus. So right. many places have campus apartments, especially back then. Right. Because, you know, back in the day, this was like my era of going to college. Right. You couldn't even have a hot plate. You had like half a fridge that barely worked. <laughs> well, and too, I, I understand the mom's concern because a lot of dorms had, you know, um, somebody in the lobby that you just couldn't walk in. and, and, and Yeah, you had to check in. Yeah, you had to check in. So You had uh, to check in. And don't forget... Ted Bundy's been in Florida before this. Yeah, geez, yeah. But they get themselves an apartment at Williamsburg Apartment Complex. It's really close to campus. They move in on Friday, August 24th. They didn't even have a telephone yet. The line hadn't even been connected yet. Okay. And that night, while wearing a ski mask, Danny brings with him to Christy and Sonia's apartment a screwdriver, a K-bar knife, and duct tape. (sighs) He broke into Christy and Sonia's apartment through the back door in the dead of night, using the screwdriver to pry it open. He snuck into the apartment, and he finds Christy asleep on the downstairs couch. She didn't even have a bed yet. Wow. It was coming the next day from her sister and her brother-in-law. So he stands over her and watches her sleep before he goes upstairs. Rob, what is my greatest fear? (laughs) Somebody standing over you while while you're sleeping and and you wake up. Yeah. 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 He goes upstairs and he finds Sonia asleep in her bed. Danny tapes her mouth shut to stifle her scream. So that's the first thing he does. Mm. He tapes her mouth shut with duct tape. Then he stabbed her to death with his K-bar knife. 
she would die trying to fend him off. <sighs> when he's finished, he goes downstairs, he tapes Christy's mouth shut. Then he tapes her hands behind her back. He cuts off her clothes with this knife and he rapes her. <sighs> then he forces her face down onto the floor where he stabs her five times. Jeez. Then he mutilates her body by cutting off her nipples. <sighs> then he washes their bodies with dishwashing soap, poses them in vulgar positions with their hands above their heads and their long hair all fanned out. He removes the tape from their wrists and their mouth. He takes that with him. And when he goes, he doesn't leave without first taking a shower. Oh, wow. The next day, Saturday, August 25th, Danny stalks another victim, an 18-year-old chemistry honors student at Santa Fe College, which is very close to Florida's campus. Her name is Christina Hoyt. Okay. She's tiny. She's petite. She's brunette with brown eyes. Krista wanted to be a police officer, and she was going to school and working part-time midnight shifts at the local sheriff's office in the record department. Mm. Now, on Saturday morning, just hours after murdering Sonia and Christy, Danny uses his screwdriver to pry open the back sliding glass door of Krista's apartment on Southwest 24th Avenue. Mm. But Krista isn't home. It's the morning. She's been working the overnight shift. All right. So he waits. He waits in the living room. Okay. And at 11 a.m., Krista comes home. Danny surprises her from behind and puts her into a chokehold. When she passes out, he duct tapes her mouth and binds her wrists behind her back with duct tape. He leads her back into the bedroom where he cuts off her clothes with his knife. Then he raped her. Then he forced her to lie face down on the bed and he stabbed her in the back, rupturing her aorta. <sighs> then he turns her body over and cuts her open from the pubic bone to her breastbone. Oh, my God. He takes the tape and he leaves. But when he gets back to his campsite, which is within walking distance to her apartment complex, right. he realizes, I can't find my wallet. He's like, <laughs> where's my wallet? Wow. And he's afraid he's left it at her apartment at the murder scene. Sure. So he goes back to Krista's apartment. Mm. And this time... He decapitates her. Oh, my God. He poses her body in a sitting position at the edge of her bed and puts her head on a shelf facing her dead body. Gee whiz. It's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I know. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sonia Larson's family is trying to get in touch with Sonia because she needs her bed. Mm -hmm. And they can't get an answer at the door. So her parents drive to Gainesville from Deerfield Beach where she lives, and they let Christy's parents know We'll call you when we know something. Right. So the parents call the building management. And when he arrives, he calls police because he doesn't want to go into this apartment by himself. So police arrive. And when his master key doesn't work, police break down the door and the deputy sheriff walks in. And the maintenance man is right behind him. And as these two see the first body downstairs, the maintenance man runs past the parents on the stairs so he can throw up. Jeez. And that's how mm. they learned that their children were dead. Yeah. Can't even imagine. The police chief is called. And as they go through this gruesome crime scene, they get another call because Krista Hoyt is late for work. 
and it's not like her at all. She's right. never late for work. Right. So Officer Keith O'Hara and Officer Gail Barber, who both work with Krista, they go to her apartment. And O'Hara goes to the back door and Barber goes to the front door. And he sees by getting down on his knees and shining a light through the sliding glass door in the back. So I've seen a picture of this Mm -hmm. and half of the blinds are up. Okay. And he's down on his knees shining his um, flashlight. Thank you. His flashlight (laughs) through the door. Right. And he can see Krista's headless body. And he tells Gail Barber, don't look. Wow. Don't look. Because he knew Gail and she were friends. Sure. So now they have another body. Yeah. Three bodies, all young, brunette, petite, all white girls. Mm. And all of Florida's campus is a titter. Students are afraid. Some were leaving town. And remember, school just started Monday. And girls are found Sunday and Monday early morning. Yeah, and this is on the heels of uh, Ted Bundy. Absolutely it is. Yeah. And Ted went into the Chi Omega house. Jeez. I, I'm a Chi Omega. Yeah. The local Gainesville police and the Alachua County Sheriff's Department band together with the Florida agents and the police department of Gainesville. They've got a serial killer on the loose in a college town. Yeah. That is a horror movie right there. There yep. it is. There's the horror movie. Yes. Serial killer on the loose in a college town. Yeah. On Monday, August 27th, just hours after murdering the three girls, Danny robs a bank, the first union bank. It's just a half a mile away from Krista's apartment. Mm. He's wearing a ski mask. He tells the tellers to fill his bag with cash, and they do. But one of them places a red ink pack in his bag with the money, and he leaves and tells them, have a nice day. (laughs) He ain't right. Yeah. So Monday, August 27th, they have three bodies that have just been discovered, and Danny is ready to kill again. Manny Tabata and Tracy Polis are best friends. Not boyfriend and girlfriend, just best friends. Sure. And the two of them get an apartment for the Florida school year. At Gatorwood Apartments. I thought that that was cute. Gatorwood (laughs) Apartments, because they are the Florida Gators, if you don't know. They're both 23 years old, and they've been friends since high school. And Manny's roommate actually moved out. So Tracy, like, moved in. Okay. Manny's a big guy. He's a former football player, and he's studying to be an architect. He's tall. He's handsome. He's got dark hair. He's a good-looking kid. And Tracy is pre-law. She's a senior. She's petite. She's brunette. She has brown eyes. Mm. She fits the criteria. To a T. Yeah. Now, when Danny broke into this apartment, he's obviously there for Tracy. Brunette, beautiful, petite. But he also got Manny. He gets more than he bargained for. Yeah. Manny is asleep, and Danny stabs him, waking him up. Mm. Manny fights him off. In fact, he will be stabbed 31 times. Good grief. But he is eventually overpowered, and Danny killed him. Remember, Danny's 6'2", Rambo. Sure. Now, during this fight, Tracy runs to her bedroom, and she locks the door after she sees what's happening to Manny. Yeah. But Danny breaks down the door. Oh, this is is a horror film. It's a horror film. So he's wearing this ski mask. She's just watched him brutally murder her roommate. Yeah. He breaks through the door in his ski mask, and she says to him, quote, You're the one, aren't you? And he said, quote, yeah, I'm the one. Jeez. He binds her wrists. He tapes her mouth shut. He cuts off her clothes with his knife. He rapes her, and then he stabs her. Mm. He washes her lower body. 
and he takes the tape with him and he leaves Manny's body just the way it was after he killed him. But he poses her body. Do we know what the purpose of washing the body was about? He's washing away evidence. Gotcha. Okay. All right. He's washing away evidence. There are no fingerprints. Yeah, that makes sense. There's nothing there. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. But he's... But he's raping these girls. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's leaving DNA. He's leaving DNA. But it's just 1990. True. Police find their bodies when Tracy's sister calls a friend, Tommy, to go over and check on them. I actually read where she had called her sister the day before and said, have you seen what's going on? And she's like, no, I haven't. And she tells her sister, please be careful because Mm. there's a guy out there killing people. Yeah. And then she can't get in touch with her sister the next day because they're not answering the phone. So she sends Tommy over and then they find the two bodies. Mm. So police are just like beside themselves because this has happened back to back to back. Yeah. Ten days later, Danny robs another grocery store. (laughs) Why? Well, the paint packet went off and ruined all the money in the bag from the bank. Yeah. He leaves it all at this campsite. And it's discovered with most of Danny's things, including the tape recorder. So there's a, there's not a knife there. Mm-hmm. There's a gun there. Right. And so they see this and they see the bag of money with all the red in it. And they're like, well, our killer uses a, a knife. Right. This was just, this was our robber, our bank robber. So they take it all into custody. They bag it, they tag it, and it sits on a shelf for almost a year <sighs> because they don't know it's Danny's. Oh, wow. So he's robbing this grocery store. It's just before 1 p.m. on September 7th, 1990. Danny's in Ocala. He's left Gainesville and his campsite. He comes in wearing a floppy fisherman's cap, Bermuda shorts, deck shoes, and sunglasses. (laughs) And he walks in the Winn-Dixie in Ocala and says, quote, this is a robbery. Get your money out, end quote. (laughs) He was. And when the clerk retrieved the money, Danny said, What do you think he said? Have a nice day. Bless you. Okay, I didn't see that coming. Bless you. Then he fled the store on foot, jumped into a 1983 silver Ford Mustang, and hurriedly left the parking lot east on State Road 200, heading toward downtown Ocala. And I'm assuming that was a stolen car. It's a stolen car. Yeah, yeah. And a Winn-Dixie employee quickly calls 911, and within a minute... A description of Danny and his car hits the Ocala police airwaves, right? Right. Ken Rame hears the bulletin come across the radio, and he arrives in front of a shopping plaza, and he watches this car. Danny is driving it. There's like a high-speed chase. Danny's driving, and he slams into a judge's secretary's car. (laughs) She's on her lunch break. She's sitting at a red light. Wow. And if this wasn't so horrible— it would be a bless your heart, right? Yeah, exactly. Of all the gin joints in all the world. Yeah. <laughs> Danny jumps out of the car. He runs toward this loan office. Officer Ram draws his gun, follows Danny on foot. Danny runs through the front door of this loan office, and he darts through the office to the back entrance. But several Ocala police officers were waiting in the back, and they tackled his ass. Nice. And Danny picked the wrong time to rob a grocery store because, quote, it was training day. (laughs) And we had twice the manpower on that particular street that day, end quote. Wow. Yeah. And when Danny is caught, he says to them, quote, boy, 
you guys are good. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> this guy's got some cojones. Yeah. Jeez. And they have their robber. But to them, Danny is not their serial killer. Right. So back in Gainesville, police see that all the victims, save for Manny, who just got in the way, were these petite brunettes with brown eyes. But police start asking around, and they set their sights on this one kid, a Florida student named Edward Lewis Humphrey. Ed had a history of mental illness. He was a manic depressive, and he'd gone off his medication. Hmm. He was taken into custody when he actually beat up his grandmother. He lived with her. Wow. And his grandmother actually recants her story after she realizes he's going to go to jail. But she says that she fell. Okay. But from that incident, they have blood, Ed's blood, for testing. Okay. And although they don't have blood from the murder scenes, they do have semen, just as you said. Right. And the lab has told police that this killer, the serial killer, is what is called a secretor, meaning a person who secretes blood group antigens into body fluids like saliva and semen. Okay. And they could tell what his blood type was. Okay. It could be determined from the semen what his blood type was. Okay. So they bring Ed in and they question him for hours while he's not in his right mind and off his meds. He looked hinky. He was acting hinky. He'd been in a car accident, so his face was all scarred up. And they were so certain that they had their killer that the judge set bail at $1 million. Wow. His face was all over the media. But when it came down to it, there's a problem. Ed had type A blood. And the killer, according to his semen, was type B. Wow. So Ed is not the killer. Right. And a grand jury refused to indict him because they didn't have enough evidence. But his life was basically ruined because his face has been shown coast to coast as a serial killer. Right. I did read that he actually graduated from college from Florida, I believe, in the year 2000. Okay. So, Ed, we wish you well. Yep. But he's just a kid. He's not a serial killer. He's a kid with mental illness. Right. So they're back to square one. And there are lots of police officers in Gainesville who would not let it go that Ed was not their killer. They wouldn't let it go. Even after they had evidence. Because if they do, it means the serial killer's still out there. (laughs) Wow. Denial, denial, denial. Yeah, it's not just a river in Egypt. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But meanwhile, the Louisiana police, they're hearing all about the serial killer and they alert Florida authorities. We've got an unsolved triple murder in Shreveport from November 4th, 1989. And there are some similarities between our murders and your murders. Yeah. The family had been attacked in their home just as they're getting ready for dinner and after Julie Grissom's body had been mutilated, cleaned, and posed. Mm. So Don Maines, an investigator on the case with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, goes to Shreveport. Because not only was Julie raped and mutilated and cleaned, there was tape residue on her body. Right. And Maines said they tested the body fluids from the perpetrator in Shreveport and found that this person also had type B blood. Mm. Julie's body also had bite marks. So they also had saliva. Now, in November of 1990, Cindy, who he went to high school with and to church with, she can't get Danny out of her head because she's hearing about these Gainesville murders and she's actually traveling through the panhandle of Florida. 
back in August when she heard all about these murders of the five kids on campus. All right. And she immediately thought of Danny. Really? Yeah. Who wanted to go where it was warm and the girls hey, were pretty and he yeah. liked to stab people and he was on the run after yeah. shooting his dad yeah. and robbing a grocery store. Don't remember. He's a fugitive. Right. So Cindy calls Crime Stoppers. Oh. And she tells them, look it. Yeah. You need to go check out Danny Rowling. You need to look into Danny Rowling. And they didn't have to look too far because Danny's in jail 40 miles up the road from Gainesville <laughs> in Marion County. He's making it real convenient. Because he robbed a Winn-Dixie. Yeah. But they have Ed in custody still at this time, and they still haven't let him go. They keep him for beating his grandmother. He's there for 10 months. Oh, wow. So they're kind of doing this, I think. I mean, he did beat his grandmother. Sure. They keep him there for 10 months because they want to, they, they're people, again, who still think, regardless of this blood evidence, they want him to be that serial killer. Sure. So after Cindy's tip and after looking into this Danny Rowling guy, they realize, hmm, this guy's got multiple convictions for armed robbery. Mm-hmm. And they realize he could have been responsible for that bank robbery that occurred on the day that Krista Hoyt's body is found. Right. So they go back to the evidence locker. Where the gun and the bag of money and the cassette player are. Mm -hmm. And they finally listened to the tape. (laughs) And the tape contained recordings of a man talking and singing. In one of the songs, the man sings, quote, Mystery writer, what's your name? You're a killer, a drifter, gone insane. (laughs) Wow. The man on this tape also talked about his family, about his life, and how he went down the, quote, wrong road. (laughs) And he also talked about the best way to kill a deer. He also says things about his dad. Dad, we could never get along. I was never good enough. All of this kind of thing. Yeah. And then at one point, he says on the tape, my name is Danny Harold Rowling. Wow. So police are like, do we have any blood evidence from this Danny guy? Right. And they did, because while he's in jail, he needs to have a tooth pulled. Ah. And they realize... Danny is also type B. B. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. On November 15th, 1991, Danny Rowling was charged with five counts of first degree murder in the connection to the college students' deaths in Gainesville. He is facing the death penalty. Mm. Before he could stand trial for the murders, however, Danny was convicted on federal bank robbery charges. <laughs> he was sent to Florida State Prison where he met another inmate named Bobby Lewis who was on death row for killing a drug dealer in the 70s. Okay. Now, Bobby Lewis claimed that Danny told him many of the details of the murders and that Danny wanted to confess. Hmm. So Bobby Lewis writes a five-page letter outlining the details, many of which, quote, only the killer could know. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. Investigators wanted to confirm the details of Danny's confession, so they arranged this meeting But Danny insists that Bobby Lewis be present as well to act as his mouthpiece. This is the weirdest thing ever. (laughs) That's strange. So investigators sit with Bobby Lewis and Danny Rowling and had Bobby answer questions for Danny while he's sitting there. What? Yeah. Okay. After Lewis told the investigators what Danny had told him, investigators would then ask Danny, if what Lewis said was correct mm-hmm. and Danny's affirmations are how they knew. And they, they taped the whole thing. Okay. So Lewis would say, 
he killed this girl and he cleaned her up. And then they would look at Danny and they would say, is what Lewis saying correct? And Danny would just nod his head. Okay. Yeah. Did they videotape this? Yes. Okay. Okay. Because my first thought was the reason he's not saying anything is so it can't be used against him. He'll just say, I didn't say that. No. Yeah. No, they have it on tape. Okay. They also learn, this is when they learn, that Danny returned to the scene of the crime after killing Krista Hoyt. Gotcha. Because he thought he left his wallet there. Sure. And when he revisited, that's when he decapitated her. And that's when he decided to do it, too. Wow. And according to Bobby Lewis, quote, I've never been told nothing in reality. I've never read nothing in a Stephen King novel that comes close to what the reality is of what this man did, end quote. Yeah, yeah understatement. They also learn that Danny fought with Manny Tabata and that Tracy actually heard this commotion, came into Danny's room. And then when she saw Danny, she ran back to her bedroom where she tried to lock her door right. and Danny broke through. So sure. this is how we know all of those stories okay. because Danny tells them. Yeah, fessed up. Yep. Danny tells the investigators he has other personalities and two of them were dark. <laughs> I'm. This is going to sound so stupid. Yanad, which was Danny spelled backwards, Y-N-N-A-D, <laughs> and someone named Gemini. Yeah, okay, whatever, Danny. And Danny blamed Gemini for the murders. Mm. The devil made me do it. Yeah, this yeah. demon made me do it. Yeah, okay. Danny confesses to the Gainesville murders, all five, but not to the Shreveport murders. He also tells police that Ed Humphrey had nothing to do with the murders. Sure. Danny's trial for the five student murders began on February 15th, 1994, nearly four years after he murdered them in cold blood. But before state attorney Rod Smith could proceed with the case, Danny and his defense attorney stand up. Danny wants to address the court. Quote, your honor, I've been running from first one thing and then another all my life. But there are some things that you just can't run from. And this being one of those, end quote. Mm. Wow. Danny doesn't always speak in proper English. So don't come for me. That's a quote. Yeah. Danny Rowling pleaded guilty to all counts. But because he was facing the death penalty, a jury was still required to hear the evidence and make a recommendation on punishment to the judge. Is he going to be life in prison or is it going to be death by injection, right. right? Lethal injection. Right. So Danny's defense presented mitigating factors for why he might have committed the murders, including his troubled history with his father. And witnesses testified to the abuse they'd seen when he was growing up. Prosecutors attacked Danny's claims that he had multiple personalities and that he was overtaken by this evil Gemini side <laughs> when he murdered the victims. Yeah. This argument according to the prosecution, was purely based on a character in the film, The Exorcist 3, mm. which Danny Rowling had admitted to watching the week he murdered all five of those kids in Gainesville. Wow. Ultimately, the jury recommended five death sentences for Danny, and the judge agreed, right. sentencing him to execution. There you go. Now, while he's on death row, you knew it couldn't be over yet. Yeah. <laughs> now, while he's on death row, he meets Sandra London, and he wants her to write his story. She's a criminal writer. She's a true crime writer. Okay. He wants her to write a story. Why? Because she had worked with his cellmate on his story. Now, these two apparently fall in love <laughs> and hand to Jesus when he's in another courtroom for another sentencing 
that's not associated with the murders. Right. It's for a robbery. She shows up. And when they ask if he wants to say anything, he sings her a song oh while she sways back and forth. And she's twiddling this ring on a necklace with her fingers. It was a ring for Danny that she would never get to give him wow. because they never let her see him in the flesh, even though these two are apparently engaged. What is wrong with people? Now, she did write a book, and she did take control of all his artwork. And there is some of his artwork out there. You can go find it if you want. But out of respect for the families, I'm not going to glorify anything this shithead did. So you can go find it if you want. But she does take control of that. Okay. Danny Rowling was put to death by lethal injection on October 25th, 2006. Prior to his death, he spoke to a pastor and handed him a note. And on it, he admitted to killing 55-year-old Tom Grissom, Mm. 24-year-old Julie Grissom, and 8-year-old Sean Grissom in Shreveport. Wow. Quote, I know that sorrow, that heartfelt bane that draws the mortal flame. Stone upon stone, the final throw etched hither toe, the captive soul. In order to fulfill all the things that no stone be unturned, Hereby, I make a formal written statement concerning the murders of Julie, Tom, and Sean Grissom in my hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. Hal Carter, Julie Grissom's former fiancé, is 100% innocent, totally pure of that crime. I and I alone am guilty. It was my hand that took those precious lights out of this old dark world. With all my heart and soul, I would bring them back. Being a native son of Shreveport, I can only offer this confession of deep felt remorse over the loss of such fine, outstanding souls. Have wept an ocean of tears by which mournful doth float upon a sea of regret. Signed, Danny Rowling. Wow. So I want to address something really quick. When she is killed, when Julie is killed, they do look at her ex-fiance. So that's why he did say that. Okay. But he is cleared of it. Right. Now, on his day of execution, he sang a gospel hymn, but made no statement immediately before his execution, which was witnessed by 47 people, many of the victim's relatives. Sure. Danny Rowling was executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison on October 25th, 2006, after the U.S. Supreme Court rejected a last-ditch appeal. He was pronounced dead at 6.13 p.m. Mm. Years later... A struggling writer named Kevin Williamson wrote the script Scream, and it went on to become a movie. He based it on the Gainesville Ripper. Oh, really? The movie came out in 1996. I think it was first a short story. Okay. Now, there have been tons of stories done, not just Scream, but tons of documentaries done on Danny. I did find one that is a paranormal investigation of Danny's home where he grew up. Okay. They're trying to figure out if he was under some sort of demonic possession. Mm. So they go to Danny's campsite in Florida, and then they go to his childhood home in Shreveport, where the owners tell stories of all kinds of paranormal activity. Really? Now, I would think that that was a little bit of a hoax, but the little old lady who lives there, she seems like she's telling the truth. Right. And this couple bought the house from Danny's father in 2005. There is still a bullet hole in the kitchen cabinets from Danny and his dad's shootout. Jeez. No lie. Wow. And according to the owners, there's loads of paranormal activity there. 
But after a priest and a demonologist cleanse the house, the owners have said that it's all stopped. This house is clean. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And it's interesting because she doesn't know that much about the murders. And she didn't know who he was when they bought this house, right? Right. But her husband, in his sleep, he he was accusing his wife of twisting his nipples in his sleep. And remember... He took the nipples off one of his victims. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Now, finally, there's a wall in Gainesville on campus. It's called the 34th Street Wall, and it's a place where kids and Greek frat boys and girls can paint things. Okay. But there is a section of the wall that is a tribute to the five who died at the hands of Danny. Mm. Christy Powell, Sonia Larson, Krista Hoyt, Manny Tabota, and Tracy Paulus. And I don't think, this is just me. This is my opinion. This is Chris's opinion. Okay. Because it's our podcast. (laughs) I don't think he heard voices. Yeah. I think he wanted to dominate as his father dominated him. Sure. And I think he was a big fat coward because an evil presence, a demonic presence, isn't going to make the girls turn around so he can murder them, so he can stab them in the back. Yeah. He couldn't look at them in the face. Right. So he's living with the demons now, (laughs) burning in hell. So he's down there with the demons now for sure. Yep. But that is the story of Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. The devil made me do it. (laughs) And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, Rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. Well, it sounds like Danny got exactly what he deserved, and he's getting Exactly what he deserves. Yeah, I think it's pretty warm for Danny. You know, he wanted to be someplace where it was warm. (laughs) He is. Yeah, yeah, he got his wish. He is. Wow. Just all those wonderful young lives. I mean, an eight-year-old. Yeah. And everybody else is, you know, 18, 17, 23. They had their whole life ahead of them. Yeah. And they were all great kids. Yeah. So much potential. Yeah. Just waiting to to experience life. Yep. Jeez. Well, our hearts go out to their families. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, let's uh, let's move on from that depressing note. Yep. To these ridiculously stupid notes. Okay. With a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right. First one. I'm I'm calling. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. John and I'm going to try to pronounce his name correctly. Comp. Paranato. It's been a rough day for names. Yeah, yeah. John Caparetto, that's his name. A retired police chief was threatened with a pistol when he left a men's room in Pennsylvania. He's leaving the men's room? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was walking out and he got 
a pistol drawn on him. Okay. Okay. The 19-year-old Robert took cash and mobile phones from him. Okay. What he didn't know, in the vicinity, there had just stopped 300 policemen who were there <laughs> to attend a seminar. A former police chief got there, helped, and gave the robber a tough chase. The young robber had no chance and was caught before he could escape in a taxi. <laughs> Now, here's the kicker. Upon arrest, he gave the, a ridiculous statement by saying, I'm harmless. <laughs> I'm harmless? Yeah. You're just in the wrong place the wrong time, buddy. Oh, he's carrying A, he pulled a gun yeah, on a police officer. Yeah. B, there's 300 of them there. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's tough luck, man. Yeah, yeah, that's a bad day. All right, number two, TMI. Too much information. You got it. A 23-year-old drug dealer wanted to get caught. At least it looks like that. Okay. At a border crossing in Germany, a young Polish citizen <laughs> put a momentous question to German officials. They don't mess around now. <laughs> no, here's what he asked them. He wanted to know whether an old warrant against him from North Rhine-Westphalia, a German state, is still valid. <laughs> hey, guys, am I still wanted? <laughs> Unfortunately for him, it was valid nationwide oh. and not just in North Rhine-Westphalia. The border guards took the dealer immediately. Of course he, they did. Yeah, yeah. He's now serving a prison sentence of one year and three months. That's the easiest arrest they made all day. Yeah. <laughs> am I am I on your list of felons? Yeah, yeah exactly. Is there still a warrant out for me? Just, yes, sir, there is. It's just stupid. All right, number three and finally, and this is a long one, so let me get through this. Okay. No good deed goes unpunished. Well, that's always true. Yeah. An alleged drunk driver unwittingly handed himself over to Nebraska police when he reported someone else traveling in the wrong direction. Oops. As it turns out, he was the culprit. Yeah, he was going the wrong way, thinking yeah. everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The man told dispatchers that someone was driving a truck on the wrong side of the Highway 77 in Lancaster County nearly ran him off the road. Get these kids off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what Lancaster County Sheriff's Office Facebook said. Now, when a deputy pulled the man over just moments later, the driver immediately realized what he had done. Yeah. Officer, do you know why I stopped you? The officer asked. The driver's blood alcohol content was over twice the wow. legal limit. Yeah, yeah, because I was on the wrong side of the road. Yes, you were. Yeah, the man responded, chalking the error up to a missed exit. So he turned around. He misses his exit, turns around, goes down the wrong way of the street. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the man, it, <laughs> I okay. know, you can't make it up. The man instantly confessed to calling 911 on himself when the deputy realized who he had in custody. Yeah, because I thought someone was on the wrong side of the effing road, bro, he said. <laughs> at least he at least he owned up to yeah. it. Yeah. But it turned out it was you, asked the deputy. Yep, like a dumb f the driver admitted. <laughs> <laughs> Again, he gets points for honesty. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Yep. Wow. That's what happens. You I tell know. on yourself, man. I know. Well, yeah. Well, there's your bless your heart. Don't drink and drive, y'all. <laughs> oh, Don't do it. Yep. Don't do it. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, you can go to hitchtohomicide.com where there's a pull-down menu, and you can also suggest a case. Yes, we you love can. that. We're getting to those. Yep. Everybody be safe out there for Halloween. It's next Tuesday, but I'm just telling you now, everybody be careful yep. and have fun. Yep. 
That's all we have today. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Who's going to make him watch Scream later. (laughs) Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. (laughs) Bye, y'all.